Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Acts chapter 17. That's where we are today, Acts chapter 17. We're in a series of messages uh, called Turning Points, Pivotal Moments in the Book of Acts. Today, we look at Paul in the city of Athens. Here's the key concept for this morning, away with idolatry, away with idolatry. Acts 17, we'll get to that in a moment, but let me catch you up in terms of where we are regarding the flow of the book of Acts. In our passage today, we are going to land in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey. Last week, we were looking at his visit to the Jerusalem Council in in chapter 15, and that's in between the first and second missionary journeys. And now he's traveling once again on the road with his missionary team. It's a new missionary team. Silas is with him. Timothy is with him. And originally, their intention was to pretty much stay in the nation that we now call Turkey. But Paul experienced closed doors, a sensitivity to the closing of doors of ministry throughout that land. And as he comes to the western portion of Turkey, he gains a message uh, that he is to go across the Aegean Sea and minister in Macedonia. He has a vision towards that end. And something else happened in, in this tail end of their journey through the nation of Turkey, and that is another team member is added to the missionary group in the city of Troas. An, uh, an often overlooked transition takes place in chapter 16, verse 10, where Luke, who writes the book of Acts, transitions from using they to we. In other words, Luke comes on the team in Troas and, and the western part of the, city, uh, of the nation of Turkey, and he travels with the team now across the Aegean Sea to Macedonia. Macedonia is northern Greece, and once they're in northern Greece, the very first city they minister in is Philippi. Uh, Paul and Silas are arrested in Philippi, if you remember, and miraculously released from the Philippian jail, and the jailer and his family, his household, come to Christ because of that encounter. Later on in Paul's life, Paul writes a letter back to this church in this city. You have that letter as the book of Philippians in your Bible today. They move south, and as they move south, the next city they come to is Thessalonica, and Paul ministers there. He writes two letters to Thessalonica later in his life, First and Second Thessalonians in your Bible. And as they move further south to the city of Berea, Timothy stays in Thessalonica to nurture that brand new church that is born through their ministry. They move on to Berea. In Berea, they find open minds, open hearts. The the ministry goes well until some rowdies from Thessalonica come south and they make things hard for the team. Paul actually has to flee, but he leaves in Berea Silas and Luke to, again, nurture this young church. So as Paul leaves Berea, he's all by himself, and where he goes is the big city of Athens. So we'll pick up the reading as Paul is by himself uh, in the city of Athens, chapter 17, verse 16. This is what it says. You follow as I read. It says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. 
Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're representing or you're presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. And Luke adds this parenthesis, And all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul comes to Athens. And he comes to Athens all by himself. And it's striking to me to understand that, you know, he could have seen this as an opportunity for a brief vacation. His team is not with him. They're not able to operate as usual. And now as he comes to the big city, he could have said to himself, well, I think I'll just relax for a little bit. I think I'll kick back, enjoy, and maybe do Athens. Because Athens already had sights to see. At this point in history, Athens was already a tourist town, and it still is. So let me pause for a moment, and I'm going to put in a, a shameless plug for the, the church tours that we sponsor here from Quail to places like Athens. We travel to Athens and visit the very sites that Paul talks about in this passage. I want to show you some pictures just to kind of make it real. Uh, first, let's, let's go to the, the photos here. Uh, on the screen there, you see the Agora or the marketplace that Paul uh, was, is talking about here in, in Acts 17 in the four ground there in the uh, higher area there you see the temple of uh, Hephaestus that's the god of, of metalworking and fire we're standing on the, the the hill of the Parthenon there looking down at the marketplace go on to the next slide this is inside the marketplace or the agora and if you look carefully in the foreground there you see some of the remnants of the stalls that were the shops that the shopkeepers would keep they would have been covered shops so people could shop in the shade and you see the walkway there in the marketplace go to the next slide here in the foreground is the marketplace once again, and as you look up the hill, you see the Parthenon. Uh, Paul would have seen uh, the Parthenon, the Acropolis there, uh, and uh, as, as he was walking through the marketplace. Go to the next slide. And there I am on, the, on Mars Hill, which is the traditional site of where the Agora met and heard Paul's message. That's not mentioned in Scripture. That's a tradition that we have. But what I want you to understand is that when Paul was walking these streets, none of these sites were ruins. They were all in their peak, uh, peak time, and he saw the works of art that decorated the city, works carved of ivory and marble and gold. But as Paul looked at the architecture and the art work, he did not see beauty. He looked through that all the way to the ugly, because what Paul saw was all of these artworks, all of this architecture, everything dedicated to false gods. Everywhere you looked, there were idols. Verse 16 says, Athens was full of idols. One historian who lived in this period wrote, in Athens it's easier to find a god than a man. They were everywhere, and some of them were immense and impressive. The statue of Athena there in the Parthenon was solid ivory, and the spear that she held in her, her, her hand went so tall into the sky that it is said it was visible 40 miles away on a clear day. All of this was meant to impress, 
But Paul was not impressed on that human level because what he saw, he didn't really see with his eyes. He saw with his heart. And what he saw was people trapped in ignorance. He saw people trapped in lifestyles of destruction. And all the while, Satan enticing people to this blindness while feeling that they have confidence and hope because look how religious we are. Look at all these idols that fill our city. But the very beauty of the city was masking the death underneath. Paul saw through to the spiritual death. And we need to take that concept and move it forward thousands of years to our culture today. Look carefully at our culture today and you'll see the same dynamic. False gods abound today. We need to look past the glitter and the glamour and glance underneath and we see that we live in an idolatrous time and in an idolatrous land, a culture of people worshiping false idols. Because anything you place above your love for God, anything that takes first place in your life, if it is not the one true God, that's an idol and a false faith. I was intrigued recently to learn that the Latin word from which we get our word religion originally meant to bind together. The thinking was this, that a people's faith, a religion of a people, provides cohesion for those people. It brings people together. It's a kind of common ground experience. Now, I kept that thought in mind, and I began to, to, to think about, well, what is the, the common ground experience in our culture today? What binds the people of the United States together? What is it that we find common ground about to talk about at school or at work, in a neighborhood, that kind of thing? And when I thought about it, what, what came to my mind was, really, it's television, isn't it? Television is our common ground. You could say, in a sense, that's our idol. And if television is the ubiquitous idol in our culture today, what is the doctrine of the religion that that idol points towards? Well, for the most part, it's a doctrine that leaves out God. It's a doctrine that leaves out moral standards. It's a doctrine of self, a doctrine, a religion of the supremacy of self and individualized choices. Now, the television is neutral. It's just a vehicle, but it becomes that idol when it's used in that way. And if that's so, then, then the doctrine of that false religion is the programming that we see day to day and week to week. And the priests and the priestesses of this false religion are those who make the decisions for the content of that programming that floods into our living rooms day and night. The doctrine of that religion is anything goes. There's no such thing as absolute truth. There's no such thing as moral right and wrong in an absolute way. The creed of this religion in our day is you set for yourself the doctrine of truth. Nothing's objectively right or wrong. Ultimately, you are the center of the universe making those choices. Ultimately, you worship yourself. That is idolatry. Little wonder and in a recent survey, 70% of the people agree with the statement, right and wrong changes from situation to situation. In a more recent survey, one out of five unchurched people said, and I'm quoting, theological belief would make little or no difference in terms of choosing a church. In other words, if we chose to go to church, it wouldn't matter what that church teaches or preaches. Why? Because they have learned the doctrine of our day well. 
Since there is no truth, why look for it? Why care about it? Why search for it? False religion, the idols of our day. But there are other things you could make into idols. Anything that diverts your love away from the one true God as primary. It can be a girlfriend. It could be a boyfriend. A club, an activity, a habit. It, it can be something that you give allegiance to or from which you draw your identity. If you draw your identity from something other than your relationship with God, what you're worshiping is a false god, an idol. And on the surface, sometimes these idols can be beautiful and impressive. But peel back the veneer and you see death. And that's what the Apostle Paul saw. He saw death. And what he felt was in verse 16, it says, he was greatly distressed. I believe that phrase sums two emotions, sums up two emotions in the Apostle Paul, two emotions that kind of came together in his response to the idolatry he saw in Athens. Those two emotions are moral outrage and compassion. Both are a proper response to false religion and teaching. We need a sense of moral outrage. Paul was outraged because he saw Satan inspire individuals to place statues that they had made with their own hands and see them as divine and place that in the center of the universe, a position held by the one true God. And he knew that God is a jealous God. He does not surrender his place. We need to feel outrage over what's happening in our society. We need to weep more about the fact that Satan is flexing his muscle in our day. And as he flexes his muscle, he covers it with an attitude called open-mindedness, with words like relativism and tolerance. Satan has convinced people in our day that it is not nice to advocate for truth. It is more polite just to let everybody believe what everybody wants to believe, to do what is right in their own eyes. That's the respectful way to live. And after all, aren't Christians above all else supposed to be nice? Isn't that the Christian ethic? Imagine with me if Paul thought that the highest Christian ethic would be to be nice. And if that kept him silent and he refused to speak out against the falsehoods that he saw all around him, as he walked the streets of Athens. Imagine if he never was able to preach the gospel message so that people would be pulled back from a Christless eternity. Paul would be silent. Jesus would not be preached. But that's exactly the opposite of what Paul did. In fact, as you read between the lines in the passage that we just read in Acts 17, you really get the sense that Paul kind of made a pest of himself. He kind of made a nuisance of himself. It says he, he, he spoke in the synagogues. He spoke in a marketplace. He, talk, he spoke to Jews. He spoke to Greeks. Whoever happened to be there, did you catch that line? He was ready always to speak up about the gospel message of Jesus Christ. We need to be more outraged and speak up against what Satan is doing because the highest Christian ethic is not to be nice in a way that silences our message. The highest Christian ethic is to speak the truth in love, the truth of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the second emotion that Paul felt. He felt compassion. 
He felt compassion for people without hope for all eternity, compassion for people living lives of confusion and slavery to sin, and we must have compassion the same way. You see, you need to get the right targets for these emotions, outrage against Satan and compassion for those that he traps. And here's the irony. If we decide that we want to be nice to the point where we don't speak the truth of the gospel, we don't warn against evil and sin, ultimately what we're doing is not being nice at all because people will not have hope for all, for all eternity. Ultimately, we're just being indifferent, and in our indifference, people will miss the best blessing that God has for them. People will uh, not be a part of what God is doing and ultimately die without Jesus in a Christless eternity. That's not compassionate. That's not nice. So what did Paul do? Well, what Paul did was he spoke out. Look at verse 17 of our passage. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. The most important thing that Paul did was he did not hide. He did not blend in. He didn't decide just to kind of go with the flow and let things work themselves out. Paul got busy. I call this a positive reaction, not just complaining. It would have been easy, I think, just to say, boy, these people are lost, just to just complain about what he saw, just make a kind of negative response and never turn it positive. But a positive response gives the solution, and that's what Paul was doing. See, he had the truth. One man has said this, you can be on the right track, but you're going to get run over if you just sit there. Paul was on the right track, but he didn't just sit there. He had positive action. He took the message to the Jews in the synagogue, to the Greeks in the marketplace, wherever he could get an audience, whoever would listen, he spoke up. Speak up. We need to speak up more. Speak up against the doctrine of relativism and the false religion of our age. That's taught on your television screen night after night. Speak up in your family. I'm talking to parents and grandparents who have children, who, who you're, you're watching television together. We all watch TV. I watch TV. But we can't just allow it to wash over us and not challenge what we see there from time to time. There's going to be things and shows you like, even shows you enjoy watching that you know are not in keeping with the teaching of Scripture. That's the time to process that with your children and your grandchildren, to make sure we, they know that we know that's not all right. We need to speak up in our families. We need to speak up in our community, speak out for righteousness in those relationships that we have. One day, these pandemic issues are going to be passed. We're going to be getting together once again in our, in our civic groups, Little League, PTO, these kind of things, and we're going to be with people who, who need to know the gospel of Jesus Christ and need a, need a sense of guidance for what is righteous and what is not, and speak up in those relationships. That's what Paul did. He spoke up, and he got their attention, and they wanted to listen, to understand, as, as Luke says, they always were listening for new ideas, and so he was invited to speak to the Areopagus, this leadership group here in Athens. And when Paul spoke up, what did he say? Well, he started by pointing to a statue that he saw in the city, to the unknown God. I know that God. Let me introduce him to you. So let's, let's look at what he said. In verse 22 to 31, we have Paul's message to the Areopagus. 
It says this, Then Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he, gives it, gives, he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by a man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now... He commands all people everywhere to repent, for He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising Him from the dead. That's probably not all what Paul said. That's not the entire message. I think that Luke is probably summarizing, as Paul tells him, uh, what the message was that he said to the Areopagus. But if you look carefully, you'll find that it's a six-point message. This is what Paul says. He says, let me tell you about the one true God. First of all, verse 24, he's the creator. You Stoics say that God is in all creation. No, no. He made all creation. He is higher and greater. Secondly, verse 25, he's the sustainer. You Epicureans say that God is far off, so it doesn't matter how we live. It does matter because he's right here, right now, involved. Verse 26, he's the ruler. He determines the boundaries of kingdoms and the power of nations. Verse 27, he's available. You can reach out to him and he will be found. Verse 28, he's Father. We are His offspring. He knows us. He loves us. He created us. But if you re refuse that relationship that He invites you to, verse 31, He is judge, and He judges justly. He judges with justice. You see, there is such a thing as sin, and the greatest sin of all is to hear the message of hope and truth, that you can find forgiveness and be washed clean of the guilt of your sin, that you can know God. The greatest sin of all is to hear that truth and reject it and walk away. God will judge that sin just like He judges others. That's the message that Paul gave in Athens more than 2,000 years ago. And that's the message that Paul would say if he walked the streets of Stockton, California today, he would say, let me tell you about the one true God. He is a creator, sustainer, ruler, father. He's available to you today. And one day, he will stand in judgment. And as you watch this today, he is your creator, sustainer, ruler, father, and judge. 
But did you notice the one piece that I left out of Paul's sermon? I left out, he's available. He's available. He's available to forgive your sin. He's available to give you purpose in this life right now. You see, there are two lessons that we're meant to derive from the account of Paul's time in Athens. For the Christ follower, your lesson is this, don't blend in to the idolatry of the age. Don't just go along to get along. You need to stand up and stand out and speak for the truth of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. But for those who aren't yet in a relationship with Him of forgiveness and love, the message is this. Come to Jesus. Draw near to Him, and He will draw near to you. Now is the time to do this. Because it may seem to you who are watching this broadcast, that God feels distant and removed from you. But I want you to know that He sees you right now, and just like the Apostle Paul said, He is available. He loves you. He wants to be a part of your life so that you no longer are separate from Him. It is our sin that separates us, not His own desire. In fact, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's where we all start. And that sin deserves punishment. But the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus came and took that punishment on himself when he went to the cross. That's what the cross was all about. He took the guilt that we deserve on himself. And he rose again and he lives today. And today he offers forgiveness and hope for all who will say yes to the gift he's ready to give. Scriptures go on in Romans 6.23, they say, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you accept that gift, you start a new life. When you accept that gift, you start a new relationship with your Father, God. Now you are part of what God is doing in the world, and now you gain the promise of life with Him for all eternity. At the end of this message, in the Areopagus, and, and, and Paul speaking to the Athenian leaders, it says in verse 34, a few believed. And I wonder, if those who are watching this, if there's not a few who are going to cross the road, cross the, the line to faith and belief today, and maybe that's you, all of this comes to us as we say yes to believe. It's a choice we make. God doesn't force us to believe. We choose to believe. And it's a faith that happens on the inside as we turn to Jesus and humble ourselves before Him. And that faith on the inside is expressed in a prayer, also on the inside. And maybe that's just what you need to do, to say yes, to cross the line to belief today. If that's you, I want to help you do that. And we do that in an attitude of prayer. So I'm going to ask all of you who are watching this broadcast here in the courtyard or maybe you're in your home in front of your television set or device, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and let's all agree in prayer together. And if you're already a believer in Jesus Christ, pray for that person, those few who need to say yes and turn to Jesus in faith. And if that's you, I'm going to ask you to pray this way. Silently in your heart you say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I believe you paid the penalty of my sin on the cross. You took my guilt. 
and I believe you are alive today, you rose again, you can forgive my sin. So, Lord, wash me clean. Make me your child. Today, I want to be born again to walk with you. And, Lord, I pray for those, maybe just a few, but for those who said yes to choosing belief today. And I pray that you would assure them right where they sit right now that they are a child of God, that you are working in their lives. I pray that they would have the reality of a new beginning, new direction in life, new habits, new truths derived from your word. I pray for all of us as we today, many of us already know Christ as Savior. We are seeking to follow you. Lord, help us not to just blend in to our culture. Help us to be obviously Christ followers, recognizing we represent a different kingdom. Help us to do that well. And for all of us, Lord, we rejoice that we can cling to you and no love and no forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, for what you are doing. Help us serve you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer to receive Christ as your Savior today and cross the line to belief, first of all, I'd like to know about it and pray for you and rejoice with you. But also, I'd like to send you a booklet uh, that tells you about the next few steps in the Christian life. It's entitled, Now What? It's a very practical booklet that will uh, bless you as you seek to now walk with Jesus by faith. Now, in order to know who, where to send it, I need your information. So if you prayed with me to receive Christ, would you text the word FAITH? Text FAITH to the number 209-257-8768. Text the word FAITH to that number, 209-257-8768. You will receive back from me a form which will just have your contact information. When you send that back, I'll know where to send the booklet and a, and a letter of encouragement, and I'd love to do that for you this week. So go ahead and make that text now so we have your information, and we will rejoice with you regarding what God is doing in your life. But now as we bring the service to a conclusion, the team is coming to lead us in another song of worship. So let's stand together in the courtyard. Let's stand as we sing. Church, may this be our response. Let's sing it. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest, and without Thank you. 
Let's pray together. Lord, we are a needy people, but we thank you that as we acknowledge that need and we bow before you, you are the meter of every need. Whatever it is, whether it's joy, whether it's hope, comfort, peace, healing, help, purpose, you provide it all. And Lord, we pray that we would be ready to be bowed before you. Help us to forget our pride, to turn to you in humility, and to recognize that in you we find all in all. So dismiss us with your blessing. Use us in a way that will bring you honor and glory this week, we pray. And we thank you for all that you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thanks for tuning in today. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next week.